to episode 19 of the Fire Safety Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated fire industry. My name's Brian Sims, and I'm the editor of Fire Safety Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the Fire Safety event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 7th, 8th and 9th of September 2021. To register for the show, visit www.firesafetyevent.com. As always, I'm joined on the Fire Safety Matters podcast by my colleague Mark Sennett, the CEO at Western Business Media. Good morning, Mark. How are you doing? I'm great, thanks, Brian. How are you? Very well, thank you, Mark. We've just passed a press on the latest edition of the magazine. That's the May edition. Lots of good content in there on things like social housing and the healthcare sector. Yeah, absolutely. It's jam-packed with stuff and it'll be out uh, in the second week of May. So not long now to wait for everybody. And yeah, welcome everybody to the May edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast. We have got a lot of news has happened since the last podcast. We've got a really high quality guest, as we could do later on in this episode, which we'll touch on in a bit. But as Brian has covered before, and I've said on these podcasts, it's just not just this podcast of where you can get the latest information on fire safety. Go to fsmatters.com and you can see all the latest news, prosecutions and products and services. There's also a huge archive of CPD webinars that you can enjoy in there. You can subscribe to get the print magazine for free or sign up to our weekly e-newsletter, which over 50,000 people have done for free. And we've also launched the Fire and Security Careers Hub. So you can look at a number of fire safety training courses, CPD and job vacancies. So just go to fsmatters.com. Bad always, Brian. You know, we start off with the news. And I've said on this podcast many a time, this is probably one of the biggest years for news, in my opinion, in the fire sector. Because we've got two major pieces of legislation trying to get royal assent. Well, we've moved one step closer, haven't we, on the proposed fire safety bill. Because an amendment has been voted down by Commons MPs. They, They voted down an amendment from the House of Lords to this fire safety bill legislation. So government legislation brought forward to make clear it's ultimately responsible for safety in high-rise buildings across the nation is now on the verge of becoming law after MPs sitting in the House of Commons voted down a further amendment proposed by the House of Lords to amend the fire safety bill. The tabled amendment, which itself was designed to protect leaseholders from having to foot the bill for necessary remedial works focused on potentially unsafe cladding affixed to the buildings in which they reside, was rejected by MPs. And this has been big news, as you know, Brian, national news as well. Despite the fact that upwards of 30 Conservative members of Parliament voted against the government, among them was former Tory leader Ian Duncan Smith, uh, the quiet man, um, and the former Housing Minister Esther McVeigh, and the ex-Minister of the Cabinet Office, Damien Green, and Sir Bob Neill. You can see Brian loves digging deep in terms of uh, political stories, a passion of both his and I, actually. And the motion failed by a total of 320 votes to 256. So for those of you keeping score at home, that's a majority against of 64. Who knows whether that would have been 65 with the new MP up in Hartlepool that was announced uh, earlier this week. So the fire safety bill has now passed through the House of Commons. And then that happened in February, March and April. So commenting on the result of the latest vote, Housing Minister Christopher Pincher mentioned that although laudable in its intentions, the House of Lords proposal would be unworkable and inappropriate means to resolve the problem as highly complex as this. Further, Pincher reserved that continuing arguments over the table amendment risk delaying the introduction of the fire safety bill, perhaps by a period as long as 12 months. The fire safety bill was introduced over a year ago now and reaching the point which is almost on the statute book and on the cusp of receiving royal assent after many rounds of votes. Now, I could go on with further comments from 
Mr. Pincher. But I think we all get the gist here. If you're not familiar with the story, obviously you're all aware now that this um, this new fire safety bill, which makes amendments to the fire safety order effectively, was proposed last year. They've long been hoping to get royal assent around about now, the middle of the year. It seems to continually pass through the House of Commons and then gets amendments put back from the House of Lords. But at this point, we do seem to be coming closer to the end. There's obviously some barbed comments there um, from the minister talking about concerns that it won't get royal assent till maybe even a year further down the line. My gut feeling on this, and a lot of people ask me, when do I think this bill will come into royal assent? Obviously, I don't know, but my gut has always been sometime after the summer, somewhere towards Q4. And I think I stand by that, to be honest. I mean, this is pretty predictable. I can certainly understand the concerns that have been raised here. But but this is certainly, this, this is what makes our political system very interesting when you have two chambers, ultimately, the uh, House of Commons and the, and the House of Lords. But, you know, the Conservatives were such a big majority in the Commons, and of course they have just increased the majority by one more with the by-election up in Hartlepool, as I mentioned. I don't see anything putting the brakes on this long term. I still expect it to come in in its current form with no further amendments. I could be wrong and I'm sure you guys will tell me if I'm wrong down the line. But that's what my gut says. So, Brian, what's your thoughts? Is there any more info to add? Yes, there is, Mark. Uh, the government was under intense pressure to have the fire safety bill passed in its current form before the end of the latest parliamentary session, which, of course, came to an end on Thursday, the 29th of April. Thousands of leaseholders across the country are currently facing major bills to pay for certain safety improvements relating to, for example, safer doors, fire sprinkler systems and also emergency exits. Along the way, House of Commons MPs have suffered several House of Lords defeats in attempting to pass the legislation, as the thorny issue of precisely who should pay for additional safety works has been a continual sticking point, Mark. The House of Lords wanted to change the fire safety bill to prevent the owners and management companies of social housing tower blocks from passing on the costs involved with remedial works to leaseholders, arguing that a government-supported grants and loans-based scheme should be established in the first instance. A previous attempt by the Lords to force through such an amendment to the proposed legislation failed back in March. Prior to the latest vote in the Commons, Fire Minister Lord Stephen Greenhalgh had already informed the House of Lords that it's time to accept the will of the Democratic Chamber, with the government now suggesting the changes desired by the Upper Chamber are inappropriate and unworkable. As previously reported by Fire Safety Matters, the government has brought forward an unprecedented package of support in a bid to alleviate the burden on leaseholders. Back in February, Mark, it was announced that £3.5 billion was being set aside to remove unsafe cladding from buildings taller than 18 metres above ground level. That funding was on top of the £1.6 billion scheduled for cladding removal costs unveiled last year. However, estimated costs for remediation work on cladding are now forecasted to be around the £15 billion mark with leaseholders picking up the majority of the circa £10 billion shortfall. Currently, leaseholders in blocks that are six storeys or lower will be forced to take out long-term loans that risk drastically devaluing their properties. They also have few legal options open to them. Often, they're not able to recover funds from developers, even if the building regulations were not complied with at the time of a building's construction. Ultimately, Mark, the fire bill was finally fed back to the House of Lords and passed in its unamended form. Attempts to reinsert the table changes were defeated by 242 votes to 153. 
Yeah, so I think, you know, from my perspective that, that, that we've covered it is a story that we're going to keep on covering and we'll have to do the same um, with the other legislation that's coming in as well, the Building Safety Bill, or hopefully coming in, trying to come in, whichever way you want to look at it. So, yeah, that was a big story coming out this week, Brian, definitely the biggest, but you've got another one you want to cover right now. What have you got for us? Yes, back in late March, the Grenfell Tower Inquiry Module 3 discussed the status of regulation within the professional fire risk assessment services market, Mark. This adds to the larger issue of the current landscape of fire safety and the ability of organisations to fulfil specific tasks to a competent standard. In the Module 3 opening statements delivered on Monday the 29th of March, James Maxwell Scott QC, speaking on behalf of the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea, stated, and I quote, Industry practice is likely also to be relevant to your consideration of the fire risk assessments carried out on Grenfell Tower. In an ideal world, fire risk assessments would always be carried out by someone of the calibre of Colin Todd or Dr Barbara Lane. But this is not an ideal world, and it was never intended that the task of carrying out fire risk assessments be reserved to qualified fire safety engineers. Maxwell Scott continued, and again I quote, For it to have been, the government would have needed to pass legislation regulating the sector. In fact, the sector was and remains completely unregulated. No qualifications are required by law. No training is required by law. There was and is no bar whatsoever to anyone seeking to go into business as a fire risk assessor. BAFE has been involved in the activity of the Fire Risk Assessment Competency Council and the Fire Sector Federation and the formulation of its recently published Guide to Choosing a Competent Fire Risk Assessor, which cites the BAFE SP205 scheme as a quality option of providing evidence of competency for organisations delivering fire risk assessment services. According to BASE, Mark, what's needed is stronger regulation. Evidence of defined competency should be required to deliver such an important life safety service. The Hackett Working Group 4 is also considering detailed competence requirements for fire risk assessors to be part of a qualifications process. UCAS accredited third party certification has been called for to be mandatory for fire protection services for some time now, and BASE fully supports this. Lewis Ramsey, board director at BAFE, has commented, BAFE and the UCAS accredited third party certification markets are prepared and ready for mandatory evidence of competency measures to be introduced. We strongly believe that third party certification of fire risk assessment organisations is of vital importance and should be required by law. Ramsey went on to state, the BAFE SP205 scheme on life safety fire risk assessments outlines the need for an understanding around the limitations of an organisation's abilities to provide fire risk assessments for buildings of particular scopes. Assessors being used under these stringent requirements should be appropriate if this became a compulsory requirement as competent providers must refuse work that they are not capable of undertaking. Mark, personally, I find it astonishing that here we are in 2021 and it's still the case that no qualifications or training are required for individuals to be fire risk assessors. Surely there has to be a baseline qualification to practice here. In my view, this is far too serious an issue for that not to be the status quo. Well, we're far too similar in terms of our opinions, Brian. You stole my thunder on that one. You've literally taken my whole preamble of what I was going to say about this. I agree with you. And there's really not much more for me to add to it than that. Then it, it does seem astounding. I mean, obviously, BAFE are doing a, a great job of trying to, to address it. it, it it's just goes beyond belief that there isn't a a core standard enshrined in law for quality of fire risk uh, assessments and for fire risk assessors I should say as well and more importantly so yeah I mean as I said you know BAFA always lobbying on this they're working hard that they're, they're all about saying only use a UCAS accredited third party certification um, person and I completely agree with them but Brian 
can't can't disagree with a word you said there. You said it very eloquently and very passionately, and that's a line that I take. You know, your magazine takes, you take, and uh, and so do organisations like BAFE. So yeah, very much in agreement with you there, Brian. So normally we now we now move on to our first guest. Who have you got for us this week, Brian? Our first guest on this edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast is Peter Baker, the new Chief Inspector of Buildings. Peter has over 30 years experience with the Health and Safety Executive as an inspector and also in a number of senior operational roles, dealing with a wide range of industries, among them construction. Peter led the HSE's reform and delivery of the regulatory regime for chemical and downstream oil industries and was appointed as the HSE's Chief Inspector of Construction back in 2015. From 2017, Peter led the HSE's involvement in the government's building safety programme following the Grenfell Tower tragedy. As Chief Inspector of Buildings, he is now at the very forefront of establishing the new building safety regulator within the HSE and also leading the delivery of a stronger and more robust building safety regime for higher risk buildings. During the podcast, Peter outlines the key focal points of his new role and also the key deliverables he would like to see realised during his term of office. Peter, before we examine your new role, could you give a brief overview of your career to date and also what led you to being appointed as the new Chief Inspector of Buildings? Thank you, Brian. Um, I've been with HSC now uh, just over 35 years uh, as an inspector, uh, and most of that time I've I've led HSC's regulatory operations in a, in a whole range of industries. Um, more recently, um, I've led our regulation of, of onshore chemicals and downstream oil industries um, for a number of years, in, including reforming the regulatory framework for for those industries following the Buntsfield fire. And then more recently, I was HSE's Chief Inspector of Construction, responsible for workplace health and safety in the construction industry. Um, so when um, the, the tragedy at Grenfell happened and the, uh, and the government response started to gear up, uh, including Dame Judith Hackett's review, uh, I and a number of HSE colleagues, because of our experience of regulating major hazard and the construction industry, were involved in, in supporting uh, Dame Judith's review. Uh, and then that led on to um, supporting and leading the HSE input into the government's building safety programme, which was set up to, to respond to Grenfell and also implement Dame Judith Hackett's recommendations um, to reform the, the building safety system. And then inevitably, once um, the Secretary of State announced uh, early last year that the new building safety regulator was going to be set up in HSE, I've been leading the, the development of the operational infrastructure and systems and approaches that we're going to need to be able to set the building safety regulator up when the legislation comes into force um, following um, following Parliament's consideration of the, the new building safety bill. And in terms of establishing and leading the building safety regulator, Peter, what are the key focal points of work for you at present and across the next few months? I think I can break these down into three broad areas. Um, first of all is, of course, to set up the building safety regulatory in HSE. 
so that it uh, operates uh, at scale um, once the legislation is in place. So that involves the, the key building blocks of building all the necessary systems, policies, procedures that will need to, to operate as an effective regulator. Um, but I think it's worth reminding everyone that the the role of the building safety regulator won't just be focused on higher risk residential buildings and the new regulatory regime. We'll have two other broader functions as the BSR. Uh, one is to have oversight and, and to lead and encourage the improvement in, in competence of everyone working in the built environment but also to have oversight of, of the built environment and the regulatory systems as a whole, um, anticipating new technologies and new risks as they emerge and, and advising the Secretary of State and, and government. And a lot of what we are going to do uh, as the new building safety regulator, both as the regulator for high-risk residential buildings and also in some of these broader functions are going to be through partnerships with industry, with residents, with other stakeholders, in, including local regulators in, in the, both the public and the private sector. Uh, the second limb um, of my priority areas is engagement with industry. I'm, as the Chief Inspector of, of Buildings, I'm the, the face and the voice of the new building safety regulator. So I'm starting to engage with industry, um, both in the construction sector and also the landlord industry, to get everyone ready for what's coming, um, because um, the, this new regulatory regime is is coming, and it's it's going to be probably here sooner than people think, uh, and so people need to get ready for the new ideas, the new concepts, and the new approaches. So there's a lot to do uh, with industry to get everybody prepared for the new regulatory regime, and then the third limb. Is, is for me the more most important element of this, which is uh, engaging with residents um, uh, who, you know, let's be frank, residents have lost confidence in the existing system. So my role as chief inspector is, is to re-establish that engagement with residents uh, and to start to build their confidence in the new regulatory regime as we go forward. And you're leading on the work aimed at providing independence and expert advice for industry, government, social housing, landlords and residents when it comes to building safety. What's this aspect of your new role going to entail and why do you believe this is so important? Yes, the government and industry and, and residents and other stakeholders you know, get their advice uh, and support on, on building and fire standards and safety from, from a whole range of sources. Um, this includes government through MHCLG and the Home Office, um, regulators themselves and the local authorities, uh, but also through established committees and bodies like the, the Building Regulation Advisory Committee. Um, what's envisaged for the future is that the, the building safety regulator will, will be at the centre of that, that advisory um, support capability uh, to support everybody who's involved in the built environment. And we will coordinate and, and provide expert advice on a whole range of matters within the built environment uh, into the future. This is very similar to a role that HSE currently has 
uh, where we as HSC are required to provide information and advice to, to duty holders, workers and, and other stakeholders about how to properly manage and control risks in the workplace. So the BSR role in this area will be, will be very similar and analogous to that. Um, part of the programme that we're running in HSC to establish the BSR will therefore involve building new capability um, and research and, and uh, intelligence um, networks, but also establishing a new building advisory committee to help us with that, that independent advisory role as well. And the competence of industry professionals and businesses is something we've focused on in great detail within the pages of Fire Safety Matters and indeed on our website, Peter. What are your views on the competence landscape as it stands at present? And also, what changes need to be affected, in your view, to ramp up standards? I think the, the competency landscape at the moment is, is very crowded, but um, that's understandable because, of course, both the construction and, and the, the building owner landlord industries is incredibly diverse. Uh, and of course, with, with construction, um, the construction industry itself operates on, on long supply chains with lots of companies and, and players um, supporting the, the development and construction and refurbishment of buildings. So it is inevitably going to be a, a complex, complex ask. Um, but I think so far, industry particularly have stepped up to the plate uh, in a whole range of um, competence working groups to start to really get underneath um, the key issues around um, both the, the capacity, the capability and competence of, of both the construction industry and the landlord industry. And you know, I'm really encouraged by work the BSI uh, are currently doing to, to set out a, a framework uh, and a core competence criteria to help all the sectors within this diverse industry to start approaching the whole issue of competence and competence assurance in a consistent way. I mean, I know from my time with HSE how important it is that people doing work and doing safety critical jobs in particular uh, need to be competent, they need to have the necessary knowledge, the necessary skills, the experience and also the behaviour to do their job properly, uh, both to protect themselves and also to protect others who, who are affected by their work. So again, another, another uh, feature of the new regulatory regime is taking the learning from the workplace, particularly with the construction design and management regulations, where clients, designers and contractors and building owners work together collaboratively um, to ensure the competence of everybody involved in the life cycle of a building. And, and a lot of those construction design and management concepts are going to be translated uh, into the new bill as well. And, and as I said, we, where's the BSR will have a really important role in the future of, of holding the ring uh, on encouraging that that drive uh, for a more competent workforce. And and your uh, your listeners would be interested to know that we've recently uh, launched uh, uh, expressions of interest to help us establish an interim independent competence committee to help us start to think through how we're going to establish the, the more formal in, um, independent competence committee under the new legislation. And the Building Safety Bill is a hugely important development for legislation in the construction sector, of course. In what ways do you feel it would ensure that the new building safety regime is absolutely fit for purpose? 
I mean, both of these bills are are absolutely crucial and are, and are part of the government's um, roadmap and reforms to to uh, strengthen and reinforce the regulatory framework. And ultimately, of course, the important thing is to to prevent a, a disaster like Grand, Grenfell ever ever happening again. Um, for me, uh, there's a number of features of both these bills which are which are really important um, that um, are implemented and are and are effective. The first is that the new legislative regime under the Building Safety Bill will set out some very clear roles and responsibilities for duty holders, whereas in the past, as Dame Judith found, uh, roles and responsibilities for all the players, both during the construction and also the, the occupation and ownership of building buildings, isn't entirely clear who's responsible for what. It also reinforces a really important principle which is at the heart of, of workplace health and safety as well which is those who create the risk are responsible for managing and controlling it and that will be a, a very common feature of the new regulatory regime and allied to that is that the role of the regulator rather than being part of the the planning and the checking process on behalf of duty holders uh, will be independent of the of those that create the risk and the, and the regulator is there to hold the duty holders to account and make sure that they've done what's required. It will be a proportionate and also a, a goal-setting regime um, and it'll have a proportionate and goal-setting approach to risk, which of course is, is really beneficial uh, when it comes to really complex building systems and the need to look at risks holistically rather than individually against technical standards. Uh, and then finally, um, the new regime will also encourage a lot of sharing and learning and cooperation between all of the organisations involved in commissioning, designing, building, occupying a building throughout its life cycle, which again was an important feature of Dame Judith's recommendations. And last but not least, what are the key deliverables you want to see realised during your term of office, Peter? Going back to my, my priority areas, um, you know, success for me means that there is a, an effective, efficient, proportionate and risk and evidence-based regulator stood up ready to implement the, the new reforms under the Building Safety Bill. Uh, that's primarily where all, all of HSE's attention is, is necessarily focused at the moment for obvious reasons. But also industry uh, would also need to see a regulator that is both responsive but also is proportionate and but nevertheless firm and fair in the way it uh, enforces the new building safety requirements so that they have confidence that the regulator is dealing with the important things. Uh, it's a regulator that they can engage with, but they're also conscious that the regulator will hold them to account um, where their performance is lacking. We also need to see, of course, a shift in culture across the whole of the industry, both the construction and the, the building owner landlord industry, uh, to be able to respond positively to this. So, again, success for me looks like a step change in that culture of performance and behaviour uh, by industry. And then uh, finally, but most importantly, is what residents will see. Um, 
they will be able to identify the duty holder who, who is responsible for ensuring their safety. They'll also have access to more information about, about the building that they, they live in. They'll also be engaged by the, by the building owners and the landlords in, in how to manage risk and, and feel some ownership of the way in which risks are managed in their building. From a regulatory perspective, they'll have confidence that there's a, an external independent mechanism so that if their concerns can't be dealt with through the established processes and procedures that the, the building owner has, that they can go outside and the, the regulator will step in where necessary and where that's proportionate. But ultimately, you know, the residents start to have that confidence in the new regulatory regime, which has been ostensibly designed to protect them so that they ultimately both are safe but also that they feel safe in their homes. the news now and the results from a recent survey conducted by a fire safety technology manufacturer geofire find that 53 percent of fire safety professionals have witnessed an increase in fire doors being waged open since the start of the pandemic the survey which was completed to gain an insight into how covid19 has impacted the fire safety sector over the last 12 months highlights key themes such as the impact of financial pressure following the pandemic 84% of the respondents have identified that financial pressure has made businesses less likely to carry out fire safety maintenance and improvements. One health and safety advisor is quoted as saying, fire will not stop for COVID-19. Employers still have an obligation to keep people and premises fire safe. Over the last 12 months, Mark, the pandemic has dominated the world with the disruptive nature of very necessary lockdowns and restrictions impacting day-to-day -day business right across the UK. Despite the turbulent year, the risk a fire poses to life and property remains unchanged. A member company of the Fire Industry Association, GeoFire is warning that businesses must continue to ensure that their fire safety regime is not only compliant, but also adapted to facilitate the added challenge of the ongoing pandemic. The report asserts that fire safety professionals believe there's a lack of awareness in businesses around the importance of this subject, with 37% of respondents stating that infection control measures have actually exerted a negative impact. Andy Collinson, the CEO at GeoFire, informed Fire Safety Matters, and I quote, as a manufacturer of fire safety products, including fire door holders and closers, we wanted to conduct this survey to learn from others in the industry and raise awareness of the importance of ensuring fire safety compliance. This is even more important as lockdown restrictions ease and businesses and buildings across the UK begin to reopen, some of them for the first time in over a year. The survey results are based on responses from a range of people working within the sector, among them fire risk assessors, fire door auditors, health and safety advisors, and also fire safety consultants. The readers of Fire Safety Matters can access copies of the full survey report by visiting the GeoFire website at www.geofire.co.uk. What's your take on this one, Mark? Sometimes, Brian, I wonder if you pick your news stories just to get an irritated reaction out of me. <laughs> you must know this is going to wind me up, this story. It's just... Oh, God, where do I start? I'm almost lost for words in terms of just the stupidity of people that want to wedge a fire door open. By its very nature, a fire door is there to protect us and, and slow down the spread of fire, limit the spread of fire, you know, and in some cases prevent it, obviously, as well. I mean, it doesn't take 
a, a genius to realise these doors close for a reason to protect buildings and its occupants. And it just exasperates me that people just treat them as another door. But if I take away my obvious irritation, Brian, on this topic, and, and I can't disagree with anything that Andy Collinson has said in there, I think it comes down to training, doesn't it, Brian? It, isn't it a case of if you see a fire door left open, no one's going to purposely leave a door open that's going to potentially leave them at risk. I think there's just a genuine lack of understanding from the people that do that of what the role of a fire door is. And I think it's a culture change, Brian. It's going to have to be, you have to educate your workforce. And I feel so sorry for the fire safety managers and health and safety managers that will come across this and have taken part in this research and, and reported back those findings because they must be tearing their hair out in this situation because they can only do so much in their jobs and you guys can only do so much in your jobs. But education seems to be the key thing. You're telling people the risks of leaving these doors wedged open and why not to do so. So the only thing I can think of here is, you know, an education process. Obviously, yes, this report also talks about respondents saying, you know, 84% there's financial pressures that people will be feeling because of the pandemic and, and the recession since then um, to do fire safety maintenance improvements. Sadly, that is often the case in recessions. Companies cut costs in a number of areas, but safety of people and premises should not be an area you cut costs because, again, that's going to lead. If you get caught out for it or, you know, tragically tragedy strikes or something in an incident in a fire then there's far bigger repercussions that only the loss of human life potentially a loss of premises but also that'll lead you into the dock if you have uh you know not had a proper risk assessment or you're flouting the rules of a risk assessment by wedging a door open a fire door it's it's not great but so you've now successfully brian got me on my soapbox so i'm now going to go into our final news story of the day and um, you've teed it up nicely actually because this is all about the home office signaling the prospect of unlimited fines for breaches to fire safety regulations so this is something that i've talked about a lot with warren spencer who will be our guest in a moment he's obviously a recurring guest every time and it's something that I completely support. But before before I give my take on it, let me just cover the news story for you guys. And you'll have something to add as well, Brian. So building owners could now face unlimited fines for breaches of regulations following the new measures being brought in to strengthen fire safety. Home Office has announced. As part of the government's work designed to ensure that people are safe in their homes, these limitless fines will be handed down to anyone caught obstructing or impersonating a fire inspector as well as those who are in breach of fire safety regulations under the regulatory reform fire safety order 2005 initially announced as part of the government's response to the fire safety consultation the new measures will come in to force as part of the legislation in the building safety bill and we covered that in passing earlier as well they will amend the fire safety order include a requirement for fire risk assessment to be recorded for each building and improve how fire safety information is handed over throughout the lifetime of a given building in tandem the home office has announced a further cash boost of 10 million pounds for fire and rescue authorities across england on top of the six million already announced in the fire covid19 contingency fund this will help with the additional tasks related to managing the pandemic, such as driving ambulances and assisting at testing of vaccination centres. So Fire Minister, Lord Greenhall, has said, everyone should be safe in the buildings where they live, stay or work. Our new measures will improve fire safety and help save lives, but will also take firm action against those who fail in their duty to keep people safe. 
Our incredible fire and services have played a crucial role in our response to the pandemic, from assisting at vaccination centres through to drive ambulances. This is why we're giving them the cash boost that they need, such that they can continue their life-saving efforts. Roy Wilshire, who was the former, now outgoing, chief of the National Fire Chiefs Council, who's the chair, I should say, or former chair of the National Fire Chiefs Council, said the NFCC welcomes the extra funding to support COVID activities carried out by the fire and rescue services across England. Firefighters are responsible for administrating around 1 in 240 vaccinations for the public. We also welcome the government's response in its own fire safety consultation and the continued investment in fire and rescue protection work. Ultimately, we want to see safer buildings for residents and are committed to working constructively with the Home Office and other partners of the Grenfell Town Inquiry recommendations and other key fire safety policy areas. So I'll throw it over to you for your take in a minute, Brian. But covering off the main part of that, about the, the talk about unlimited fines could come in for anyone obstructing or impersonating a fire. And so I absolutely support this completely. It, it carries on nicely from the last story and, and others that we've covered today about the importance of competent people carrying out the work. I've long said on these podcasts that what concerns me in terms of regulation in this country or enforcement of regulation through the courts is I'm not sure the level of fines have been scary enough to really scare people straight. And we've talked to Warren about this in the past and he thinks he's getting there with with recommended amendments like this. And he has seen a significant rise in the average fine for fire safety prosecution. And in my mind, that's something the HSE has done very well on the health and safety side. And obviously corporate manslaughter bill coming in a few years back. You know, you shouldn't have to scare people straight, scare people into complying. But people, you know, people should want to comply. But people do cut corners. We talked about that today with, you know, proper open fire doors. Sometimes making people aware of, you know, the crime and the punishment that goes alongside it is the deterrent you need. And yeah, I, I completely support this. But Brian, you've got more detail on this for us. Indeed, Mark. The new measures announced by the government are going to do the following. Improve the quality of fire risk assessments and the competence of those who complete them. Ensure that vital fire safety information is preserved over the lifespan of all regulated buildings. Improve cooperation and coordination among those people responsible for fire safety and also make it easier to identify precisely who they are. Strengthen enforcement action with anyone impersonating or obstructing a fire inspector facing unlimited fines. Strengthen guidance issued under the fire safety order such that any failure to follow it may be considered in court proceedings as evidence of a breach. And also improve the engagement between building control bodies and fire and rescue authorities in reviewing plans for building work. And finally, require all new flats above 11 metres in height to install premises information boxes. The fire safety consultation took place last year to inform government work on improving fire safety in general. The government received feedback from over 250 stakeholders with an interest in building and fire safety. Among those were residents, responsible persons and enforcing authorities. Further to all of this, Mark, the government fully intends to launch a further consultation on personal emergency evacuation plans in order to seek additional views on implementing the relevant Grenfell Tower Inquiry recommendations. Well, Brian, I think this seems like a perfect segue into our next guest who's obviously a regular recurring guest and that man is Warren Spencer who's prosecuted more cases than anybody else in the fire safety order over 200 to be precise so I sat down with Warren earlier and here's what he had to say.
morning, Warren. How are you? I'm fine, thank you, Mark. And yourself? Yeah, great, great. A lot going on at the moment for both of us. And, you know, I was looking at what we could talk about today and I didn't really have to look very far because you've got a website, firesafetylaw.co.uk, and you recently released a blog through James Ed, who obviously works for you at Backhurst Bud, and I thought this would be a really good topic to ask you. So it was all on the top five tips for fire safety professionals regarding their contractual documentation. Could you tell us a bit more about this, please, Warren? Yeah, this this comes from um, a subject that we've talked about a few times, um, which is fire safety professionals and their culpability under the fire safety order. And... There's two ways that they can be responsible, and that, that's uh, under Article 3, where they're talking about someone's control of the premises, and but, but mainly for fire safety professionals who are not the responsible person, it's under 5.3 and 5.4, um, and 5.3 um, being responsible to the extent of your control, and 5.4 to the extent of your obligations. Um, what, what, what this article is about is actually putting down on paper the extent of your control and the extent of your obligations so that there's no ambiguity in that respect. What, what we've found in the past is that um, a, lot, a lot of fire safety professionals are happy to, to con you know, contract to do work uh, with verbal contracts. And, and whilst they are verbal contracts are contracts in law, um, you know, as, as James has said in the article, uh, they're not worth the paper that they're, they're written on because they're not written on paper, they are so unclear. And my experience of prosecuting and defending is that the responsible person, um, if ever there are problems with the premises, will be very quick to blame the fire safety professionals that the responsible person has dealt with and say that was their gig, as it were, and that it was under their control. Um, and of course, at that point, to point to a um, written contract to say, no, the, these, this, is, this contract outlines the extent of our obligations or this contract outlines the extent of my control, uh, makes things very clear. Uh, and certainly, if invited in for an interview by a fire service, to take that contract with you to say, I'm not, I'm not actually responsible for that aspect, um, then that's going to protect you and limit your culpability under the order in an appropriate way. So speaking of... Uh tips for the future in terms of fire safety legislation for those that aren't aware fire safety matters magazine are partnering with warren and blackhurst bud solicitors to do a digital conference a two-hour digital conference on enforcing the fire safety order this takes place on the 14th of may this year at 10 30 a.m it's a perfect forum for you guys to come in and ask as many questions as you can to warren and james ed who obviously we just mentioned to talk about the fire safety order now the key thing here is that I think everyone knows how experienced Warren is in terms of the amount of prosecutions that he's made, but they will be presenting, they, as in James and Warren, will be presenting seven case studies outlining the typical issues that arise with fire safety related prosecutions and focusing on defence cases and enforcement notices appeals. So it's seven case studies of common failings under the fire safety order, which is the legal side of things that you have to comply with so you can register up to attend this you just have to go to www.fsmatters.com and click on the webinars tab and you will see enforcing the fire safety order which is right there and you can click on it and it's the 14th of may as i said but but warren to give us a flavor of what you're going to go over could you share a little bit of what people can enjoy if they come along 
Well, when I do my uh, training with um, businesses and companies and, and, and fire services, um, obviously I, I always set off by saying that the training ahead of you is going to be pretty dry because it involves law and fire safety and, and both of those with the greatest of respect to them are, are fairly dry subjects. And the feedback I, I usually get from my training is that they found the cases interesting. Uh, and so uh, this is a, a webinar where um, again, I think looking at a, a screen is quite dry, uh, but the, these are the cases that, that actually outline a lot of the law and a lot of the fire safety points and bring them together and, and hopefully um, can, can make it quite entertaining as well, interesting. In the, these are real cases. Um, I will obviously pay respects to uh, GDPR, but these are real cases that have happened in the past and I'll go through them uh, just extracting the points uh, which which people might be interested in, and also the points that you know are, are quite interesting generally about how people run their businesses and the premises, uh, and how people try to uh, get around the fire safety order. Yeah. So as I said, this takes place on the fourteenth of May at ten thirty a.m. You can register up by going to fsmatters.com and clicking on the webinars tab and it's well worth coming along. It is very interactive. Warren takes multiple breaks during the sessions to actually let you ask questions and he and James to answer as many of them as possible. It's really your session, what you make of it, make it as interactive as you'd like, really. No question's a stupid question, that's for sure. So Warren, just moving on a second before we go, if people want to get in touch with you or Blackhurst Bird, what's the easiest way to do so? Well, um, first and foremost, uh, you talked about that uh, article which is um, on, on our website, which is Fire Safety Law, which is a blog. Um, and so if you want to read that article, or there's, um, there's a recent... Um, responsible persons flowchart that's on there that has been quite popular on LinkedIn and um, you can go to the website uh, I'm on LinkedIn uh, there's a, a group on LinkedIn called fire safety law as well which you can you can request to join and if you're in the industry that that won't be a problem you'll usually get accepted um, and obviously at Blackhurst Bud Solicitors um, I'm on Twitter as well. Brilliant thanks Warren great to see you and looking forward to catching up with you on the 14th. Thank you Mark see you then. guest this week is actually an in-house guest. It's Mark Sennett. Uh, Mark has got some very exciting news about which I'm going to ask him some questions. Uh, Western Business Media recently announced the launch of the Fire and Security Matters Awards. Mark, can you explain the reasoning behind this move? Strange to be grilled by you, Brian. Strange. But yes, I am the guest, it seems, uh, today on this. And yeah, I'm really excited by this. And now your question was, why? What's the reasons behind this? And we successfully launched the Safety and Health Excellence Awards four or five years ago now, and it quickly became the biggest networking do in the sector. It's held at the Vox in Birmingham alongside you know, the NEC series show, the fire safety event, health and safety event, etc. But what's great about those awards was it came at a time where the health and safety profession really wasn't getting the recognition it deserved in the media, and there was nowhere people could really go to have the great work they do of keeping property and people safe. And for a long time, we've had a couple of fire safety categories in there. And we just actually did the latest safety. Now, thanks as always, digitally uh, in April, on April the 28th. And actually, Fire Pro UK won the Innovation of the Year for Fire. So I've long wanted to launch another awards event on the back of this that celebrates both fire and security, because they are intrinsically linked, certainly on an installer basis as well. So 
and there's been a real hunger from what I've been told by entrance saying, oh, I need to do a fire awards, you know, that we'd like more categories and stuff like that. So I went and speak to Ian Moore at the Fire Industry Association. And I said, I think this is something that we should partner on. I really think I could get a lot of industry support behind it. And we quickly got industry support behind it, which I'm sure you'll ask me about in a bit, Brian. But for me, these new awards, which will be completely free to enter for all of you listening, is the opportunity to get the work that you do recognised. You do essential work on keeping people and property safe. That's what you do. And your teams, your products, your businesses, your projects, your partnerships that you have, or individuals as well, deserve recognition for the great job that you do. And for me, Fire Safety Matters magazine and Security Matters magazine, which of course Brian is the editor of both, I feel that we've got an obligation to lead the way here and do something that not just brings the whole community together, but celebrates the profession that we cover. I know Brian and I, when I was editor of the magazine, I know Brian feels the same way now, I was incredibly proud to cover the fire safety sector and the security sector. I've loved doing it, and Brian does a better job of it than me, to be fair. So they always say, replace yourself with better people, and I feel like I've done that here. And this feels like something a magazine should do. It should have a cause. It should celebrate and believe in what it stands for and what its readers stand for. And so for me, these awards, I hope, will be very widely you know, welcomed by all of you. So that was the reason behind it. And of course, once the FIA said they'd love to back this, along with a number of other associations and partners, it felt like a no-brainer to me. So we're going with it. And when and where are the inaugural awards taking place, Mark? Yes, so we're going to be opening entries for the awards this month in, in May 2021. And I'll tell you later how you can do so. And it is free to enter. You'll have until towards the end of the year to enter that. And it really won't take long for you to do so. But the awards themselves will be held at a gala dinner on the 28th of April 2022. So I did say that correctly. We're given a whole year until the awards winners will be announced. 28th of April 2022. I wanted it to... I've put it that far away simply because I want to have the best shot of us being hopefully as far past COVID and back to some sense of normality as possible. And it'll be at the Rico Arena in Coventry, which uh, will soon be changing names, the Rico Arena, with a new sponsor. But as we speak, I can still call it the Rico Arena. It's really accessible. It's in the middle of the country. It's beautiful um, hospitality premises. And yeah, 28th of April 2022 will be a gala dinner. We've got a lot of great things planned in terms of entertainment and networking and, and we'll keep on revealing that along the way. So 28th of April 2022 is when it happens at the Rico Arena in Coventry, but entries are opening in the next couple of weeks, Brian. So we want people to enter imminently, please. You've mentioned the FIA, Mark. What other supporting partners and sponsors are already on board for the event? Yeah, absolutely. So the headline sponsor for the fire side is ACO, and we've already got... Apollo fire detectors as a category sponsor as well. And we've got a number of others that are soon going to be announced. The main partner for the event is the Fire Industry Association. It's worth noting that anyone that buys a ticket to this event, to the Gala Dinner itself, or decides to sponsor, will actually directly be helping the FIA because they will get a percentage of the profits for this. So we're keen to give back to the industry. And of course, the FIA is a not-for-profit. So we're very keen to do that. But yeah, there is a number of other people that are, that are backing this, including the Institute of Fire Safety Managers, this is on the fire side first, because that's what you guys will think about first and foremost. BAFE as well. 
the National Security Inspectorate, because obviously they cover fire too. SSAIB is another one. IFIDA is another one that's involved in it. On the security side, you know, we've also got ACES International, the ACES UK chapter, the Security Institute. So, and of course, Security Matters and Fire Safety Matters are obviously leading the way on this one because it's, you know, it's it's our awards, Brian. So it'd be pretty daft if, if we didn't. But we're also... Um, going to involve, um, we're going to try and make some charitable donations from people as well to get the firefighters charity involved. I think that's a fabulous charity and one that I think everyone listening today will be pretty happy that we chose or are choosing as our charity partner for the evening. And could you outline also how the Fire and Security Matters Awards will be different from other award schemes? In short, what's going to make this event stand out from the crowd in your, in your view, Mark? I think it's keeping it simple. If you, we've got an independent group of judges from all the associations that there is no financial incentive from Western Business Media or Fire Safety Matters or Security Matters to pick winners here. And that's what's really made the Safety and Health Excellence Award stand out. We put together, a, you know, a who's who of judges that have been in the game a long time. They don't know who invests or Western Business Media, the organisers, and they don't care, quite frankly, either. And we couldn't rig these awards if we tried, because, you know, Brian, you'll be a judge to oversee it, but you'll be a non-voting judge. You're just there for, um, for process. So it's actually industry experts from associations and bodies that will make the decisions from it. The Security Institute, SSAIB, NSI, FIA, etc., etc. So... That's, that's one thing. But I'm a big believer, having done awards for a long time, that it shouldn't be based on needing to be a technical expert on anything. If, it, if you can't eloquently and briefly get to the point why your team, team member, product service, yourself, your contractor, your partner, your project, whatever it might be, actually what it does to keep people and property and or property safe. If you can't eloquently and quickly put that across almost in layman's terms, then, you know, it, it's it's not what we're trying to achieve here. We want to make it so obvious of why it deserves to be celebrated what you do. This shouldn't be a time-consuming entry process. It's really not. It's, it's four questions. And just put across what you're doing to make people or property safe. That's that's what this is about. Will you make a absolute material difference to either security or fire safety, which are essential to keeping people and property safe. So for me, this isn't a labour of love to enter an award. It should be something that you enjoy doing. It's quick and easy to do. And it's so obvious for our judges that this is making a real difference. And then let us champion you, the shortlist that, that they'll pick for the great work that you do. I think that, and of course, with us having the media channels that we do, then we can really push out this message to a very, very wide audience. And, you know, we've, we've got database of over 200,000 security professionals, over 50,000 fire safety professionals. You know, you get on that shortlist, a lot of people are going to know about it. And I think that's something that is very much worth knowing and makes it very worth entering. And we're not trying to make money from entries and it's free to enter. So and other awards schemes do charge. No, we're not doing that. We want this is about celebrating what you do and that you're good at it and it's vital what you do. That's a neat segue into my next question, actually, Mark. Why do you feel it's so important to recognise and reward talent and contribution in both the fire and security business sectors? 
Well, I practice what I preach on this, Brian. You know, I enter our magazines into industry awards. You'll know, and you should be very proud, that Fire Safety Matters has been listed for another industry award for Magazine of the Year at the, at the PPA Awards. And, and I'm very proud of that. And, and you and the team thoroughly deserve that shortlisting. I believe good employers, good colleagues and good partners should celebrate the role that other people put in. You know, yes, it's a job, but it's also a career for most of you listening. You have a passion for this and you deserve to be recognised for the hard work that you do. And and it's not just a desk job that you guys do. Far, far from it. It's very diverse what you do. But what you do is important. And for a long time, it's been lamented. The health and safety, fire safety, security has, has been lamented, you know, in certain national newspapers, you could say too, Brian. And I think that's unfair. When it comes down to it, the jobs that everyone listening here does is done to protect people and the premises with that they work. We have a right to come home from work safe. I believe that passionately. I believe everyone has a right to come home from work safe, whether it be a firefighter, a police officer, um, an accountant, a journalist, it really doesn't matter. Everyone has a right to come home to their families and their loved ones safe. And it's because of the work that listeners like we have and the readers that we have do that that is the case for the vast, vast majority of us. And we're very lucky to have qualified, competent people doing these jobs. And I think that's worth celebrating. Protecting people on premises and having some of the best statistics from across the world to do with fire safety, security and health and safety. I think that's worth celebrating. I think the career path you've taken is worth celebrating. And I also think that one of the FIA's key objectives is to try and make fire a more interesting area to come into as a career and i know that the security institute also feel the same way on that and aces uk and people like that i think showing people that people in the sector for doing their jobs and doing it well can be celebrated and rewarded is another way to entice people to come into the sector so do you know what you do get recognized for for the work that you do it's very easy to give plaudits to a professional sports person because you know they, they get it live and in action and uh, yeah okay they can get slated too particularly if they play for my side Oxford United but at the end of the day people deserve credit if they do a good job and I think that makes a happier workplace it makes people more productive and it makes people enjoy their career path it makes the career path even more enticing to be able to come into the state. So yeah, I do, I do passionately feel it's important. And it takes no time at all to get one of your staff nominated for this. You know, the fact is, I think the best part of my job, if I'm honest, is when I reveal the shortlist, all the winners of the Safe and Health Excellence Awards. There's joy on people's faces or the emails we get back of how happy they are. It really means something to people to be to be recognised. So if you're a line manager of someone it really does make people's day to show that you value them and they get external recognition through it as well so this is a great way of rewarding people and that'll pay you back in spades brian you know if you've if a person feels loyal and you could talk to cento you know brett ennels are on cento uh fire and security jobs and he would say you know it's not always money, really. Money isn't the driving factor of people changing their careers or changing jobs. It's job satisfaction. If they're not happy in their work, that's the main driver. And this is a way to keep them feeling valued and keep them happy in their job. And it's well worth doing. And it will take 
10 minutes of your time. Well worth it. A loyal and happy member of staff will be a productive member of staff. And the same thing with a contractor, a partner or anything else. I couldn't agree more with that. I found myself nodding all the way through your responses there, Mark. And we're nearly at the end now. We've got a couple more questions to go. Uh, this one, in what ways would you hope to see these awards influence best practice in the fire and security sectors going forward, Mark? I think it just comes nicely with what we're doing here as podcasts and a magazine. If you guys haven't guessed by now, we are really pushing best practice and standards and competency throughout the podcast, throughout the webinars. That's why we're CPD accredited for reading the magazine and for listening to the podcast and for coming to the webinars and the digital conferences, etc. Because we're passionate about that. And I think this is the natural next step. Now, you can preach the importance, Brian, of being competent. And that's what we've done throughout here. And no one listening to this is going to disagree on that you know i've got a captive audience uh, nodding along when i say this right now but the next step to, to keep that going is, is recognition of that you know let's it's not always easy and not everyone has unlimited marketing budgets to say how great their product their team their company their project is this gives you a way to get free pr if you're shortlisted this gets you recognition from your peers. It gives you the endorsement that you deserve and it adds credibility to your team, your product, your company, your project, whatever it might be. So for me, it helps highlight the good things that you do that not everyone will necessarily know. It's a great way of showing how things are driving forwards in terms of standards, who's leading the way, and others can aspire to be like them or learn from them. Because you know, we're not just going to do a shortlist by, and we're obviously going to do a big thing on this, a brochure, a book of the night, I should say, which will list the reasons why people were shortlisted. And that's a learning lesson for everybody. So I think this is a great way of sharing best practice while also helping you know, the morale and the recognition and satisfaction of your own teams and your, and, and your companies as well. And on top of that, it's a great networking opportunity on the night, Brian. You get to meet your peers in a no-pressure environment and, and celebrate the good work that you've done and really meet the people that are making the biggest difference in this sector of driving standards forwards. Now, finally, the entry process for the awards is soon to open, Mark. For those companies, individuals and project teams who are keen to be involved, how can they submit their entries? Yeah, absolutely, Brian. We're, it's imminent, the opening of the entries, and entries will be open until the 30th of November. We're just waiting for the website to go live and the final testing stages of it. And, of course, you know, web development is the bane of most people's existence with uh, launching new websites. But, yes, it, it will be opening in May this year, so keep an eye out. But the, let me just tell you the categories that are involved, Brian. So there's Innovation of the Year for Fire. There's Fire Manufacturer of the Year. Fire Safety Installer or Integrator of the Year. Fire Safety Project of the Year, Fire Safety Manager of the Year, Fire Safety Team of the Year, and a Lifetime Achievement Award. Now, there's a number of security uh, categories as well. A Guarding Company of the Year, Security Manufacturer of the Year, Security Install Integrator of the Year, Security Risk Manager of the Year, uh, Security Team of the Year, and Security Project of the Year. So there is a number of categories that you can enter. They're all free to enter, all free. They've got four simple questions in them each. And you've got a maximum of 250 words per question that you could enter. And you've got a chance to upload one supporting document that's in there as well. So it really isn't a complicated process to enter. And as I keep saying, it is completely free to do so. So, you know, uh, the, all we would ask you at this point is to 
look at the website, which will be opening sometime in May, hopefully in the next few days, probably middle middle of May, I would imagine. And that web address will be www.firesecurityawards.com. So firesecurityawards.com. We, of course, will put a link on the FSM website in the main navigation as well. So if you can't remember that or you want to, you know, you want to see when it's definitely ready and open, you can go to fsmatters.com and there'll be an awards tab. But, yeah, the web address is firesecurityawards.com. It'll open in May. Entries will close on the 30th of November. And then, of course, we'll be revealing the shortlist at the start of next year. And then it will all be all eyes on who the winners are revealed at a gala dinner on the 28th of April 2022. And we'll be very soon announcing the celebrity host for the night. We've got a good comedian lined up and I'm looking forward to sharing that with you guys on the next edition of the podcast. brings us to the end of this latest edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Peter Baker from the Health and Safety Executive and also Warren Spencer of Blackhurst Bud Solicitors for their highly valued and engaging contributions. You can read more on the issues raised here and others by visiting the Fire Safety Matters website at www.fsmatters.com. We do hope you've enjoyed the content and found it useful. On that note, please do contact us if there are any particular themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag FSM podcast. On that note, do make sure you follow us on Twitter at fsmatters underscore mag. Please do like and share the content of our regular podcasts and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Fire Safety Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. All you need to do is enter the term Fire Safety Matters into your chosen platform search box. We'll see you next time.